Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, for his brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in them or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, 
And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man said, The Lord of the land, then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every, man, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw the, their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall, go, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed, if you've been on a boat for a while, that when you step off of the boat, or or I should say, while you're on the boat for a while, you kind of stop perceiving the swaying and the rocking of the boat. And then when you step off the boat, suddenly it feels like the solid ground is swaying and rocking. Have you ever experienced this? I remember a man and I years and years ago, eons ago, went on a, a cruise for our honeymoon, and then we went on a cruise for our five-year anniversary, and, and I can hardly remember those days, right? Um, but, but that was something that happened. And, and when you're on that big ship, you almost forget that you're on water, that you're floating on water. And, and you forget, um, you know, at least for me, the swaying and rocking, other than one day when it was stormy, and then you felt the swaying and rocking. But, but other than that, you forget that it's swaying and rocking. And then, and then when you get off the ship after having been on the ship for days, you step onto what you know to be solid ground that is not swaying and rocking, and you kind of feel like this. Like, whoa, it takes you a second, right? When we sin, and we live in that sin, or we live with that sin for a while, we stop perceiving that sin so much. It sort of becomes deadened to us until something happens to knock us off. And at first we think, at first when that happens, when something knocks us off, at first we think that this new reality is the problem because suddenly we feel off. We feel even though we're standing now on solid ground, the swaying and rocking. So we look down, right? And we see, no, 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 this is solid ground. 
And then we begin to wonder how long we've been riding the uneasy tides and waves of sin. Or think about those dreams that you have from time to time. Since, you know, Joseph has dreams, we'll use dreams as an example. Think about those dreams that you have from time to time. The ones that feel so incredibly real while you're having the dream, right? And then you wake up from the dream and you start thinking about the dream that you just had and you realize how many things in that dream defy reality. In the moment, you think this all makes total sense as you're dreaming it. And then you wake up and you go, that didn't make any sense whatsoever. Everything was turned upside down and sideways. Things in that didn't, didn't actually logically sync up. This is what sin does. Especially the kind of sin that's been hanging around for a long, long time. Especially the sins that we never fully or never really deal with. The lies then that come along with them, that we tell ourselves so that it feels like the boat's not rocking when actually it is. And so we go on living and we start to get used to that stuff. And to mix metaphors a little bit, it starts to just feel normal, even though it's incredibly unstable. It starts to seem normal, even though it's all messed up in reality. Not only do we stop thinking about the sin or, or the sinful attitudes as sin at all, but we start thinking of lies as truth in order to make ourselves feel better, in order to continue to function while that stuff hangs there until something wakes us up and our conscience is pricked and we think, how could I have overlooked that for so long until we wake up, what will wake up our consciences? From chapter, Genesis chapter 42 to Genesis chapter 45, 15, that, this entire section we're about to venture into is a sort of subunit that communicates the process by which Joseph is reunited with his brothers. The process by which the sons of Jacob come back together. Now remember, this part of Genesis, it's not just a story about Joseph. Oftentimes we talk about, well, this is Joseph's story, but that's not actually technically true. This story is about the sons of Jacob. All of them. And yes, Joseph is a main figure in that, but when you actually begin to look at this last section of Genesis, these final 14 chapters, there's actually very few chapters where it's Joseph by himself. There's actually very few scenes where it's Joseph by himself. Oftentimes, it's actually the other brothers or the other brothers with Joseph. And so at the start of this section, what we see is 10 of those sons, 10 sons who had committed a, a, a heinous sin, right, against Joseph, some 20 years before, and yet had stuffed it down and had been living a lie for all that time, come face to face with Joseph again. They've been on the boat so long, they no longer feel how rough the waters really are. They're living a dream where Joseph was eaten by a beast. And that's the end of the story. But God... God is bringing this story around 
to a conclusion. Will the brothers go to their grave in that lie? Will Joseph put them in their grave? Right? If we were Joseph, that might be what we would do. And then what will happen to the promises of God to Abraham? Or can there be reconciliation in God's family? You see, we're going to break this subunit down, chapter 40, chapters uh, 42 to 45-15, as sort of a mini-series inside of the greater series of Genesis. It's going to be a four-week series on how reconciliation happens in God's family, how God reconciles brothers in His family. And, and I want to give you an overview of it. Okay, so you kind of know where we're going. Today we're going to talk about how we must awaken to our sin. Next week we're going to talk about how we must refocus on God's abundant grace to us. Then we're going to talk about how we must replace sinful responses with self-sacrificial love. And finally we're going to talk about how we must trust in God's sovereign plan. Listen, if we are to be reconciled, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's going to be reconciliation in God's family when sin happens, these things must exist. We must be wakened to our own sin. Everyone. Not just the other person. You as well. You as well. We've got to focus on God's grace to us. We've got to replace sinful responses with self-sacrificial love. And ultimately, we can't trust in the other person. We can't trust in ourselves. We must trust in God's sovereign plan. Okay, that's the big picture. Now let's talk about today. In our passage, I believe God, through circumstances and through Joseph, is waking the sons of Jacob up. They've been a 20-year slumber. He's stirring their consciences about their sin against Joseph. And listen, that's what some of us need. We see, we see where these sermons are going. Listen, you just listen to me give an overview of the next four weeks, and I know that some of you, this is what's happening in your hearts. Nope, not going there, Cody. Nope. I know, I know deep back in my head what someone has done to me, what another Christian has done to me, what another brother and sister in Christ has done to me, and I am not going there. So I'm closing my heart up for the next four weeks. That's why we start with this passage today. We often tell ourselves it's too painful. But consider these brothers. Perhaps their response to what they had done 20 years ago Perhaps the way that they had responded for 20 years actually made the situation worse and not better. Perhaps it actually made it worse for Joseph, made it worse for Jacob, it made it worse for themselves. And we can think it's been so long. Why not just let dead dogs lie? what we find in this passage is Joseph ain't dead. And that sin that you have ignored, it's not dead in you either. 
or that sin against you that you have not actually forgiven, that you've not actually been reconciled with the person who's offended you, it's not dead either. We're living a dream, and we need to wake up. And I know that when you, again, to mix metaphors, when you step off that ship, it feels unstable. But trust me, when God wakes you up to your sin, that you've, you're on more solid ground than you've been on for a long time. And so this is what I want to do. I want to look at, at this idea of waking our consciences by considering three myths that keep us from waking up to our sin. I want to talk about three myths today that we tell ourselves that keep us from waking up to our sin. Okay, myth number one, time heals all wounds. Time heals all wounds. You've heard this, right? No matter the pain in time, it will heal. It won't bother you so much anymore. And listen, some things do feel better in time. That is true. But that is very different than healing. Time is part of the equation, but it is inadequate on its own. It becomes more like the set for a theater production. It looks fine from a distance. Just don't get too close and don't poke it too much. or might fall down. That's what time does to our wounds. It's been 20 years since Joseph's brothers sold him. Time has gone by. Even Joseph, last chapter, is naming his sons in such a way that, that it seems that he has forgotten the past pains that he's experienced, the past offenses against him, which is ironic because in naming his son, wouldn't that remind him every single day of those offenses, right? I'm naming my son, the Lord has caused me to forget all the, you know, it's like every time you say his name, then you're remembering that very fact, you know? God's humorous in his timing. Just at this moment is the moment in which he decides to bring these brothers back together. And we quickly see that time alone doesn't cut it. Famine comes to Canaan as well. Jacob's household needs food so he can... So, so Jacob sends the ten to Egypt saying, go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. And you should pay attention to that phrase because you're going to see it repeated in these coming chapters a number of times. And what I want you to get is that when we live in such a way that we allow sin to remain, we refuse to be reconciled with those in God's family, we are bringing death into our life, not life. Jacob's concern in that moment is their physical well-being, which is a legitimate concern. They could certainly die of famine. That's, it is a famine. But God's concern and the bigger play, the bigger story that's happening in Genesis is the spiritual famine due to the unresolved past sin of these brothers. And we see the consequences of the sin right here in that Jacob will not send Benjamin with the other ten. Why? Because he's afraid. He is filled with gripping fear that something may happen 
to the other son of his wife, Rachel, just like it happened to Joseph. And so even 20 years later, the sin that even Jacob doesn't even know what actually happened is still affecting him. And what I want you to realize is the sin that is still between you and other people, whether you realize it or not, whether anyone even knows that it happened, it is affecting other people. It's affecting your family, your church, and your community. We think the circle of the consequences for our sin is much smaller than it really is. We live in a time and culture that overemphasizes individuality and underemphasizes the fact that we live in community. Oh, sure, we talk about the importance of community, but we only talk about it in terms of its benefit to us. You should be in community because it's good for you. We never talk about it or rarely talk about it in terms of the community or how being in community might shape us, even in painful ways, and that's, that's actually a good thing. So verse 6 jumps to Joseph in Egypt, right? Jacob sends the sons, they go. We jump to Joseph. Joseph is there. He's handing out grain to anyone who comes to him, um, doing his job. And the brothers come up, and Joseph recognizes them, but he treats them like he would maybe treat anyone else. He treats them uh, roughly, it says. He, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And the narrator tells us, particularly, that Joseph remembers the dreams. He remembers all the way back, the dreams he had about him and his brothers. And so he uses what would be a real concern, spies in the land. I mean, as the governor of the land, that would be something that he would be concerned with. That here they are, all their cities are full of grain, and there's a famine over the entire region. You would expect that one of the concerns that the Egyptians would have is, people are going to come kill us for our grain. And so, he uses that. He says, you're spies. You've come to look for our weaknesses. And listen, 10 brothers saying they're all sons of one man would kind of look like, wait a second, I don't know. You're, you're all sons of one guy? Looks like you're a force of spies. So he uses this as a, a cover for testing the brothers and discovering what's happened in his family for 20 years. Of course, the brothers, they respond, we're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And that's partially true, right? They haven't been spies. They're honest maybe in this moment, but are they honest men? I mean, are they honest men? For 20 years, they've been living a lie about what happened to their brother. And Joseph presses more, and they, re- they reveal that Benjamin is alive. And Joseph says, well, I'll send one of you back, and the rest stay here in prison. And you bring, you bring uh, Benjamin to me, and we'll find out if you're honest. And so he throws them all in prison for three days. Now, you might think, well, clearly Joseph's wounds aren't healed. That's pretty harsh. You might be thinking, Joseph's a pretty harsh guy right now. But I, but I want to kind of I want to flip that a little bit, because I don't think that that's actually a very accurate picture. I think as the story unfolds, if we pay attention to Joseph's actions, what we see is Joseph is actually incredibly merciful with his brothers. He could have, as soon as they walked up, said, put them to death, and no one would have thought twice 
They would have just been executed like that. That was the authority he had. And not only does he treat them quite fairly, but he actually treats them quite mercifully. Remember at the end of the story when he, he gives them provisions for their journey? He doesn't just say, buy your food and then you can eat that food on the way home. He actually gives them provisions on top of that. He puts the money back in their sacks. And later on, what we'll see is that he attributes it to God, not to him. He doesn't ask for that money back. He's actually incredibly merciful in this entire journey. It, it, just in this very point alone, at first he says, You'll all have to stay. I'll send one back. And then he flips it, doesn't he? And he says, no, one, one stays. All the rest of you take back food for your households so your households can be okay. See, Joseph isn't concerned with vengeance on his brothers. His concern is God's family and God's promises. His concern is that to know what's going on with his father and his father's household, that they would live and not die. And we'll see that later, just as a, as, a, as a teaser for the ending, that by the time that they're reconciled, it's as if Joseph had already planned everything out, as if he was just waiting for the moment to be reconciled to his brothers. Listen, the people who have offended you, are you waiting for the moment where you can be reconciled with them? Oh, Lord, if only, if only I could be reconciled with them. Please, God, I am prepared for that. Joseph is. So the point for the moment is this. Time doesn't heal all wounds. When my kid gets a little scrape, I'm not worried about cleaning it up and getting a Band-Aid, right? Because, because I'm not worried about infection in that wound. It's, just, it's minor. It'll heal in time. And in the same way, when I maybe say something dumb to Amanda, and I'll admit that happens from time to time. I mean, it's rare. It's a relative term. And she, she thinks to herself, you know, well, he shouldn't have said that. But considering the situation or considering that that's a pretty rare occurrence or whatever, I'm just going to overlook it. I'm not going to hang on to that one. She doesn't give it another thought. And that's a good thing, right? Overlooking an offense is a good thing. And in those instances, time, you know, whether it be 10 minutes or the next day, does heal that. But some wounds from our sins don't work that way. Sometimes there's deep cuts with rusty nails that get infected and bits that stay in the wound that risk life-threatening things like tetanus. Time is just time. Time in that instance is just time for it to turn from a serious injury to a life-threatening injury. That's what it is. Compound fractures don't just heal. Bones have to be set first. Time might actually make it harder, not easier. So if you never deal with your own sins, wherever you go, listen, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. You continue to hurt others, you continue to hurt yourself. If you never deal with sins against you, it's so easy for bitterness to infect your heart. And then, though the original sin was someone else's, the consequent sins are actually yours. 
but we rarely recognize that. We just want to look at what the other person's done. It's like when you fail to use a knife properly and you cut yourself. You ever done that? You fail to use a knife properly, you end up cutting yourself. And then what do you do? What's the first reaction? I'll say guys especially. What's the first reaction? You either blame the knife or the item or the person who needed you to cut it, right? It's, it, those are the people that are at fault. Oh, that stupid knife. It wasn't. I can't believe I had to cut this thing. It's like, no, no, you were using the knife improperly. <laughs> 20 years is a long time and a lot for these brothers to get over. And so rather than thinking of time heals all wounds, what I'd perhaps like you to think instead is this, keep short accounts. Write that down. Keep short accounts. Pay the credit card bill at the end of each month, or else the relational interest will get too much for you to pay. In Ephesians 4, it says not to let the sun go down on your anger. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to reconcile quickly with those who accuse you. But also, this matters with God himself. In Psalm 32, David describes his lack of admission of his own sin this way. He says this, quote, For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Keep short accounts with people. Keep short accounts with God. And that brings me to my second myth, myth number two. It's best to keep secret sin secret. It's probably better if people just don't know that. The third day comes, but Joseph doesn't release only one brother, does he? As I said, he, he keeps only one brother instead. And, and what's the reason why he does that? Joseph says, because I fear God. You remember back when Abraham didn't think the king of Gerar would act rightly because he didn't think there was any fear of God in the land. And Joseph is saying, since I fear God, not only can you trust that I'll follow through on my word, but you can trust that I'll do the right thing when you return, that I'm doing the right thing now, that I'm proving it by my mercy in this act. So it starts with Joseph's mercy, but the brothers must respond correctly. The consequences are literally life and death. He says, live and not die. Live, do this, or else there'll be death. Now, here is where it gets interesting. The brothers, still in the presence of Joseph, but not knowing that he understands them, not realizing that he's actually their brother, that he actually knows their language, right? They think he just speaks Egyptian. And they say, they have this little confession session there because they don't think that anyone knows what they're saying. In verse 21, it says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see, they're comparing the distress of Joseph 20 years prior to their current distress. And in so doing, they're confessing the guilt of their secret sin. And it makes me wonder, and this isn't in Scripture, but it does make me wonder, how long has it been since these brothers actually talked about that day? To what degree, even amongst themselves, have they actually been pretending that truth, or that lie, a lie was truth. So all of this, Joseph would have known, right? He knew that they, what they did to him, but, but, 
There's a part that he wouldn't have known. Reuben says, I told you not to do it, but you wouldn't listen. He didn't know that. He didn't know that, that Reuben had stood up for him, that Reuben had intended to save him. Reuben says, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. I told you not to do that because I knew that God would hold us account. Joseph would have had no idea. Nevertheless, they perceive that their current situation is God bringing retribution on them, which they admit they deserve. Listen, I, I won't sugarcoat it for you here. We avoid dealing with old and secret sins because it is heavy and it is difficult to do so, right? Man, you, you think about it and you go, like, I don't want to deal with that because that's going to be a heavy thing to deal with. That's going to be so hard. It's going to be hard for me. It's going to be hard for them too. But here God has created a circumstance to shake it out of them. And Joseph is, is deeply moved by their confession. He's deeply moved by this realization. And we can see that, that Joseph is not hardened against his brothers. Even now, he has a heart of grace towards them, even though they sinned so significantly against him. Far from mere retribution, Joseph and ultimately God through Joseph are working a different angle, aren't they? Yes, the brothers... The brothers deserve retribution for what they've done, but God and Joseph are working a different angle. As hard as it is to uncover sin, reconciliation can't happen while sin is still hidden. It can't happen while sin is still hidden. You might think, well, why didn't Joseph just right in that moment, right when they woke up, say, brothers, if he had such a heart of grace, why didn't we just say, brothers, I love you, I've missed you for 20 years? Well, he, that wouldn't have worked. The sin had to be dealt with. See, we can have an attitude of forgiveness towards someone who may still be pretending that they haven't sinned against us. And we should have that attitude towards them. But that falls short of what God desires for His family. And so their confession, albeit intended as a private conversation, reveals to Joseph that they do have regret for what they've done. But are they truly repentant? We think that uncovering our sin, our secret sin, is the worst thing that can happen to us. If people know, think about the consequences. Think about what people will think about me or, or, or what punishment I might uh, be inflicted on me because now they know about that thing, right? Like, my, like when I was a kid and we broke, uh, you know, I remember, this is not in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. I remember one time we were trying to find the Christmas presents that my parents had bought for us. And my dad had this closet and had these like nice wood shelves that were like custom built, you know. But it was, but they were like, I don't know, three-quarter inch plywood or something. It wasn't wasn't very, very thick. And the 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 gifts were on the top shelf. We were little kids. And so we tried to climb up the shelves, but the shelves couldn't handle our weight, and one of them like broke. And so we kind of like propped it up and then like put dad's sweaters he never wears over the top of them. Like, okay, it'll be like months before he notices that this is broken. And then it'll be like, oh no, what happened? You know, like, oh, sorry, I just gave all your kids an idea. Sorry. But at any rate, um, we, 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 we're worried about, oh, if I, if I was to confess that thing, now all of a sudden the consequences will come on me for having done that. 
And we often justify keeping things hidden, even by saying things like, well, well, it'll be worse for them. It'll be worse for them if I bring it up. But we fail to realize that the consequences of keeping sin hidden are far worse than the consequences of bringing it into the light. So rather than thinking it's best to keep secret sins secret, I'd like to put this phrase in your head instead, sin breeds in the darkness and it dies in the light. Sin breeds in the darkness and it dies in the light. You keep it hidden, it will get worse. It will grow. Bury that bitterness in your heart and it will grow into something that you cannot hide anymore. Cover up that sexual sin and it will undercut your heart and your marriage, even if your spouse doesn't realize it's there. Your sin will come out one way or the other. Trust me. The Bible is clear. Your sin will be exposed one way or the other. It will catch up with you. Even if you can live your whole life and it never comes out and you go to the grave with it, Christ will, on the day of judgment, expose it. He will know. He does know. You think you've kept it hidden. You haven't kept it hidden. He sees all. In John 3, after declaring that God loves the world and gave His Son to save those in it, also declaring that those who refuse to believe in Him are already condemned. And then in verse 19 and 20, it says this. It says, and this is the judgment. This is Christ's judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you understand that? People saw Jesus himself in the flesh and still rejected him. Why? John says, because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do you fear the consequences of exposing your sin more than you fear the consequences of hiding them? then you aren't trusting God. You aren't trusting that He's forgiven you, that the consequence has no ultimate power over you. You aren't believing that Jesus really will judge every person, and that He'll judge you based on the works of Christ and not your own. You don't want to expose it because you love your sin more than you love the things of God. You love yourself more than you love Christ. The last myth we have to deal with is this. And this is a big one because it can be a little confusing. Myth three, God doesn't want my heart to be troubled. God doesn't want my heart to be troubled. Joseph has this one last twist in store, right? He puts the money back in their sacks, as we said, which inevitably will end up as a gift to them. But we have to assume that he knows that this is going to cause them distress in the meantime, right? And I think, I think what he intends here is for them to see themselves as going free with food and with money while one of their brothers is still in prison, just like 20 years ago when their brother was sold into slavery and they went free with food and they were sitting there eating. Remember it says they were eating? And they thought, oh, here come some traders. Let's sell them. And then they got money 
for having sold him? I think Joseph is setting up a similar example now, again, to stir and awaken their conscience to their sin 20 years ago. Sure enough, the brothers, they go on their way. One of them opens their sack to feed the donkey, and the money's there, and they realize it, and, they, and it says that it causes their hearts fail them. They tremble to one another. They say, what is this that God has done to us? I think, again, as we venture through these chapters, oftentimes we think in terms of like, well, Joseph is testing and Joseph is doing this. But, but what Scripture continues to tell us is, yes, Joseph is doing things, but it is God who is bringing all of this about. And so they think Simeon is as good as dead. The Egyptians could possibly be on our tail right now, tracking us down. Our dad is going to be distraught. And they come to Jacob and they tell him what happened and they empty their sacks and then they realize that all their money has been returned. And it says that now they and Jacob are afraid. And Jacob says what they're, we're all thinking. Uh, Joseph is gone now. Now Simeon is gone. You want to take Ben as well? Fat chance. This is not going well. Reuben. You know, Reuben tried to save Joseph, right? Maybe we're not like really like, eh, maybe not the right technique. And here, Reuben, you know, he's trying again. But there always seems to be something off with Reuben's approach. It's not, it's, not quite, it's not quite what God would actually have him to do, right? And, and he says, here, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. Like, <sighs> Reuben. But it's interesting, and this, this is all going to get tied together. This is all going to get tied together because, because when 20 years ago, when Reuben sells when Reuben tries to save Joseph from dying in the pit, Judah is the one whose idea they take, right? And that idea then is, well, let's sell him to slavery instead. It's as good as when we get some money. But you're going to see another thing happen that's going to be really similar. Reuben here says, you can have my two sons. You can kill them if I don't bring Benjamin back. But in the coming chapters, Judah is going to have a different plan than Reuben again. But this time, Judah, Judah is going to say, I am that pledge. Not my sons, not someone else, not selling him, not saying, forget about Simeon. I will be that pledge. I think that's why when we get to the end of the chapter, it's not Simeon, it's not Reuben, it's Judah who gets the birthright. It's Judah that, whose line Christ comes from. Well, we're not quite there yet, but I was really excited about that, so I shared it anyways. The chapter, it starts with the brothers in situations with legitimate physical danger, right? The lack of food and then the risk of imprisonment or even death in Egypt. But then we end here with this added extreme psychological and emotional distress that they're experiencing. I mean, think about the terms that are used in this passage. They're trembling with fear. They're in the same kind of distress as their brother who thinks he's going to die in a pit or who's being sold into slavery. 
And we think God doesn't want me to be in danger, right? God doesn't want me to be in distress, right? He wouldn't allow me to be tested like that, right? And my answer, the simple answer to that is, yeah, yeah, he would. He would do that. He would allow that. Absolutely. He does. But it's not because he's vindictive. It's not because he's capricious or arbitrary. Feeling all right is not the same as being all right. The Bible doesn't tell us to what degree the brothers were bothered by what happened 20 years prior. But it doesn't seem like a whole lot. Joseph is out of mind. They've got families now. I mean, for seven years, their crops were growing great. Life was good. Life was good in Canaan. I don't know. Days, months, years can go by without thinking about Joseph. But just because they felt fine doesn't mean they actually were fine. We saw in chapter 38 how Judah continued to act unjustly in the example of Tamar towards others. Ultimately, the brothers were not all right with God. And unlike Joseph, they were not fearing God, nor being honest men. Life seemed pleasant for 20 years for these brothers, and it seemed terrible for Joseph. But Joseph was the one who was an honest and faithful man. Joseph was the one who was fearing God. Joseph was the one whose God's presence was with him. These brothers, not so much. It's true that God wants as Colossians 3.15 tells us, to, for us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, right? But that's a peace that can exist in the midst of trials and distress, much like it did in Joseph. And the Lord knows that any other kind of peace, any other kind of joy, any other kind of hope that we manufacture is futile and it is fleeting. It is a mirage in the desert. For this reason, God wants your heart to be sanctified. When we clear the sin, when the sin is cleared out of, of our hearts, and our hearts are on a firm foundation of true joy and true peace in Christ, that's very different than if sin isn't cleared out. And we continually find that the joy and peace of Christ is tainted and destroyed in us. So rather than saying, God doesn't want my heart to be troubled, what I want you to say is this, God wants my heart to be holy. He wants my heart to be holy. Sometimes that comes through trouble. Sometimes that comes through troubles. But ultimately, it results in the peace of Christ. Ultimately, it results in a hope in the Lord that will last forever. Lamentations 3 31 through 32 says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Just as Joseph's trials were turned around, so God's compassion to His people will always extend beyond the grief we, He allows us to endure today. Understand that, that, that if your heart is troubled because of things that have happened, that God's compassion is greater than that, and it extends beyond that, and He will turn that around to much greater joy than grief is grief today. 
So just as the brothers said, we are not spies, we are honest men. We tell ourselves, I'm all right since I'm not like so-and-so, or it's not as bad, at least I haven't done X, Y, Z. And just as this past situation is meant to draw their attention to their dishonesty and the wrongdoing of the past, we need to wake up to our sin before it gets worse. Joseph's test is not vindictive, it's not capricious, it's, it's measured, it's pur- purposeful. And we can even see grace and mercy in it, and we can see the same in our own lives and the way that God deals with us. But at the same time, He does not pull punches. It hits just hard enough to begin to awaken their consciences to the sin that they've buried deep down. And this is just the start of the process. But listen, I want you to understand that I don't think that we are, are to see ourselves as Joseph, looking for ways to test our brothers who we think have sinned against us. Jesus is the good brother. He has a means for doing that. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So our work, our work in being reconciled to our brothers, our work in reconciliation in God's family, it doesn't start with, how can I test that person's heart? Our work starts with, Lord, examine my heart. Examine my heart, God. It doesn't start with, let me see what is in their eye. It starts with, let me see what's in my eye. Church, Jesus is a good brother. We come to Him for bread to live, and He's given it to us. But there are things, past sins against Him that we've buried, things we don't want to talk about, stuff in our hearts we don't want to deal with, but He's a good brother. He won't let us get away with that because He knows it's not best for us. And we may think, why open up old wounds? Why remind me of past mistakes? Why put me through hard times and heart troubles? And we can see these trials as punishment, but for God's people, it is the love of Christ because, friends, you are standing on a Titanic that is sinking. He wants to pull you off. And when He does, the ground feels a little shaky, but trust in Him you are standing on solid ground. 